Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. We have Bruce Damer calling in. I'm just going to put him on the air. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Tom. How are you? Good to talk to you this evening. Yep. So I have some uh, some news and notes before we begin on this evening's topic, and some of which you can probably discuss as well. However, for folks listening in, this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. You can hear more Biota Podcasts at biota.org slash podcast. And if you're listening to this live on Blog Talk Radio, the number to call in is 646-200-0644. If you're listening to this as the podcast, every Friday night, 8 p.m. Pacific, we have Biota Live, which is an hour-long live internet radio show. We have a call from the UK. I believe it's Justin Lyon. Hello. Hey, Tom. How are you doing? Hey. Good to talk to you, Justin. So we've got, some, you. we've got some news and notes to go through. Um, 10 a.m. Pacific tomorrow will be the first... Uh, what I'm calling Saturday matinee of the Buyers Alive radio show. Uh, it's specifically timed for folks on the East Coast and folks in Europe who would like to participate. And the topic is artificial life for the next decade. What will happen in the next decade? What needs to happen? What are the directions? Whether or not there will actually be artificial life in 10 years' time. A wide variety of topics touching on wet hard and soft artificial life, uh, the communication of artificial life to the broader public and uh, whether the likes of Craig Ventner or Microsoft are going to change artificial life in particular directions. The following Friday night at 8pm Pacific, we are going to be discussing artificial life from books to the internet, which is a topic that came to me actually talking to Bruce during the week about how when I started out developing artificial life, when Bruce started out developing artificial life, it was books that provided the inspiration. But now it's uh, the Internet. It's Internet sites like Biota, like uh, alife.org, all these uh, kind of sites and people uh, going to those sites and finding projects and communicating with folk. And it's a completely different medium. Now, Bruce and I somewhat romantically look back on books as being the way to go with regards to getting the message of artificial life out. However, as we were talking during the week, it occurred to me that the Internet was just a, as valid a means. Now, Bruce, in terms of our uh, week's worth of stuff, I wanted to talk a little bit about Dick Gordon's book that both you and I are contributing to currently because we're currently looking for other practitioners of artificial life to participate in Dick Gordon's book. I was talking to Steve Grand today about his interest in participating. Um, he seems to be quite interested in the, in the project. Can you talk a little bit about uh, Dick Gordon's book, Bruce? Yes. Um, can you hear me? Am I loud enough? I think you are this evening. That's wonderful. I must, I'm coming up in volume in life. I'm, I just turned 46 yesterday. So You're speaking louder as an older man. As an older man. <clears throat> well, Dick Gordon, uh, he was at Digital Burgess. That's how I, I met him. And his the book uh, is being done as a partnership with an Israeli professor. And it's all about the debate between proponents of evolution and proponents of intelligent design or creationism. So there's 
religious figures writing in the book, uh, bishops and rabbis and creationists and evangelical. I don't know if there's any evangelical writing there. Um, there are scientists, biologists, and for me, I'm a I'm contributing as a as a technologist. And so that it's just a whole series of essays that um, also have commentary and dialogue with them. Are you participating in any of the dialogues, Bruce? I haven't done it as yet because I've been so wrapped up in getting this PhD application in. And so I've, I've, next week I've got to uh, go in and, and participate in the dialogues as well. I mean, the dialogues are a fascinating part of the process. I've uh, participated in two so far and I'm working on a third currently. And I think what it shows is really there are no, there's a quite a strong continuum between, um, I guess, what you would call, um, you know, radical um, and collected intelligent design through to, um, I guess, the other extreme, which the debate is really whether or not that is science or whether that is a different kind of belief. And certainly, um, so far, I've written with Dick Gordon uh, in dialogue, which has been fascinating because Dick and I share similar positions, although marginally different. And uh, recently, I um, had some uh, dialogue with astrobiologists, very positive astrobiologists that were almost panspermian in their views, which was quite interesting. And I'm now in a dialogue with a um, creationist professor uh, with regards to whether computer language and things like the English language prove intelligent design. So there's quite a, a smorgasbord of curious and divergent views that seem to be coming together uh, in, in this book that Dick is putting together. But it's a fascinating project, and, and coming to it as a, an artificial life developer, it's very interesting getting thrown into the kind of philosophy of all these different ideas and where one's own perspective sits. So it's an interesting project, and if folks are interested in participating in that, because Dick is still looking for people to participate in the dialogues, um, please feel free to go through the uh, comments section on the Biota website. I know Bruce and I received a comment today um, from someone who wasn't sure if there had been any development in artificial life in the past 15 years, and I pointed him, or I, I pointed the po person towards the podcast so hopefully they are um, now picking up a, a wide variety of differing perspectives with regards to artificial life and the kind of development that's gone on in the past 15 years as captured here. Now, there's some grey thumb news. So, um, Justin, I'll, I'll allow you to pass on the grey thumb news to the listening audience. Well, certainly, we've got one. Um, we're scheduling one uh, for February in London. Uh, we're in the process of establishing the actual venue of where we'll be um, hosting the event at. It's going to be in central London. And it's going to be, if I just pull up the calendar very quickly, on the 20th, the evening of the 20th. Uh, assuming that works for Bruce, yes. I think that was the date that Bruce picked, actually, looking back at the correspondence. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, great. So, yeah, it'll be. Um, uh, the evening uh, of the 20th in central London, and just as soon as I secure the venue, uh, this being London, I'm having to actually uh, call around and find a place that's available. Once I secure the venue, we can maybe send an announcement out letting people know so they can come and visit. Terrific, and I'll certainly be covering it uh, in the uh, in the Bio to Live radio show as well. I mean, I think 
what we're trying to do with BioToLive is uh, spark a lot of folks' interest over the globe, and if there can be more grey thumbs, so much the better. Bruce, have you had any more thinking with regards to grey thumb Silicon Valley? Oh, we, we definitely need one. In fact, uh, Justin, have you heard from the grey thumb executive? Uh, they were going to get us a sort of a package of, like, that contained the mission statement and graphics and stuff. Have you received anything? I dropped an email to Brian. I'll follow up with him again uh, to confirm. The uh, I haven't received it yet, but I'm, he's, he's supposed to be pulling something together, he said. I know that they've uh, set up the accounts and stuff on the website, and they're in the process of creating the new Grey Thumb London stuff uh, in terms of the logos and things. But I'll drop Brian an email and just confirm it. And you're literally flying back from London, Bruce, and then participating in, in a Grey Thumb in Boston, aren't you? Are you on the 3rd of March? Am I right in thinking that? That's right. So actually, my first Graytham meeting will not be in the original Graytham group, but in the, the new one in London, and then uh, followed by the the Boston one. And I fully expect I'll fly back to Silicon Valley and establish one here. And I heard a rumor that Biota's buying a round of drinks at the Boston one. All li uh, all who attend the libations are on us. Uh, the board has a approved it, as you, as you pointed out. <laughs> um, it sounds like a Royal Society uh, meeting. Yes, I, I, I hope they don't drink the, uh, the biota budget dry. Um, but, uh, <laughs> Better be careful there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought it was I've a very generous offer. I, I, I've I been to one before. They, they can put away beer, so be careful there. <laughs> I, I very specifically said one round. Okay, very good, very good. Anyway, so um, for folks listening into the live radio show, if you'd like to call in, the number is 646-200-0640. And there is also a chat window, and I see one uh, guest in the chat window, so feel free to ask questions through the chat window. Now, we have some apologies this evening. I know um, Bruce had, and I both had invited Rudy Rucker on the um, radio show. However, he's looking for a, a text interview um, which I guess we can read out and discuss. If folks have any questions they'd like us to put to Rudy Rucker of previous podcast fame, I should point out that folks who aren't actually subscribed to the Biota podcast feed missed out on some fascinating excerpts from uh, the NASA Ames event that Bruce was organizing last weekend. And uh, Rudy Rucker was the second part of that audio that made it into the Biota feed. Um, so if folks have any questions for Rudy, and he really, is, as the audio proves, um, is a very insightful fellow, um, but I think the live radio format is, is overwhelming for some. Also for Steve Grant, who sends his apologies, but uh, when he's, uh, I guess, finished his house and things of that nature in um, the Louisiana area, he will, uh, he will be a participant in this podcast. So apologies from Rudy and Steve with regards to this evening. But the topic this evening uh, was coming straight from the discussion that we had with Jeffrey Ventrella over the past two weeks in terms of motivation, the seed idea, but more importantly, the setting of the seed idea, which is something that I know, Bruce, in in recent days even, your PhD has changed in direction and is now heavily grounded in an environment. Would you like to introduce the seed idea in that context? Yeah, the, <clears throat> the PhD research proposal is in its seventh iteration. I'm hoping maybe the final one uh, going into the University of East London folks. 
but it, it uh, started out as kind of a almost like a, a history of virtual worlds, and now it's down into uh, an actual implementation of a what I call an evolution grid or an evil grid. And strangely enough, I, it's sort of the, the, the term evolution grid came into my head, so I put it in <coughs> Google and there were plenty of evolution grids and no domain names. And then I noticed evil grid. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I found that evilgrid.org was available, so that became the name of the project. And really what it is is trying to implement a vision where artificial life engines and developers would have their environments able to communicate. So you would have a 3D viewer that was really good looking into a grid of activities that are going on regardless of whether somebody's viewing it or not. Uh, and the individual artificial life engines are kind of headless and that they don't need to be driving a scene graph in order to run. And they're talking across the network. So that would do a bunch of things. That would allow uh, artificial life engines to talk to each other. So you could have a, a herbivore talking to an L system growing, uh, growing algorithm that then the herbivore can eat parts of the L system and interact. And you could also have an extensibility so that if somebody gets very tired of, of working on their particular, particular artificial life, say, ant colony, it's still running and it's left in the grid and someone could come and pick it up later and continue to build it. So nothing will be lost, which is, as we know, the artificial life field is littered with abandoned projects. And some of it's very good work and it's just simply lost. And the strange thing was, so I grabbed the domain name evilgrid.org and then I Googled evilgrid and found that there's a Python framework that a fellow has made last year, it says, it's basically described as a Python framework supporting artificial life simulation. And I couldn't believe my eyes because I sort of found this after the fact. And Python was exactly the language that I was considering looking at, at creating this thing in or a prototype because our, our digital spaces 3D front end is all Python scripted. And John Klein has put Python into Brevet. So it seems to be that, that Python being so popular is also spreading into the artificial life area as well. So there I stand with potential. I downloaded the code base. I'm going to go tomorrow and buy a book on Python, read it on the flights, various flights to the UK, <coughs> and try to uh, boot, boot start an old brain that hasn't written a line of code since 1995 i.e. me, uh, to, to try to see if I can script some code. And I'll also have a couple of uh, fellows in our company that can help in the project. But ultimately, I've got to write something uh, and make something work, and hopefully in partnership with other artificial life developers. So in terms of what Jeffrey was talking about, um, and certainly my abstract idea for this show, the idea of the aesthetic and the kind of... Um, well, in Jeffrey's case, it was very much an aesthetic. With me, it was very much a kind of philosophy that motivated the initial development of the project. But ultimately, the environment was central to both of those things, both the philosophy and the aesthetic in some regard. So for your project, you've already mentioned creatures grazing on L systems. What do you see the aesthetic as being like? 
Well, I'm, I'm hoping the aesthetic is, is very beautiful. Uh, one of our, our speakers uh, at the event last uh, week was uh, Will Wright, and he gave us a very long, in-depth demo of Spore. And it's probably the most in-depth demo he's given to date. And it's amazing. I mean, it's very, very cartoony and cutesy, but the, the aesthetic is, is gorgeous, and it's all procedural. Everything is procedural, all the planets, the topography, everything. There's not a single thing that is just a recorded, um, you know, a recorded mesh or even primitives. It's all procedurally made, and it looks great. And the, there's authoring tools in there that are phenomenal. So I'm hope you know, the Evil Grid won't, you know, it's not a commercial venture with $50 million behind it and professional artists, but I think in a tortoise and hare type situation, we'll attract some great artists who will produce some really great visual representations of some of the creatures and the landscapes that hopefully are procedurally made, and that over time we'll end up with uh, really quite a spectacular environment. This happened with Nerve Garden, the project back in 96-97. We ended up attracting a couple of really great artists, a sound artist and, and a, a 3D modeler in Fermal, and they really made all the difference because the the coding side of it, we just didn't know what to do. We could generate the L-system plants, but, but generating the insects and the landscapes was left up to, to artists. So for someone new starting out, let's go back to kind of first principles with regards to surreal and possible worlds. Jeffrey mentioned the idea of the rich ocean environment, and this is certainly something that... Um, has come through a number of other uh, artificial life developments. The idea of the aquatic environment as being particularly good for developing complex artificial life systems. What you're talking about, Bruce, appears to be a kind of dry uh, environment in some regard, although I can imagine pools and oceans that are applicable for these kind of environments as well. I wanted to um, get Justin involved in the discussion with regards to uh, potentially, um, you know, two or three individuals coming together and not obviously having the same budget that Will Wright has, but the potential uh, for folks to come together and kind of brainstorm with regards to surreal and possible worlds to create artificial life environments. What's your view, Justin, with regards to the need for an immediate high-density, high-resolution aesthetic versus, say, a, a relatively simple uh, JavaScript or iconic aesthetic? I think that the more robust the user interface in terms of you know, a prettier aesthetic will drive people to understand it a bit more. I mean, we discovered this even with the demonstrations of artificial life on the supercomputers, the Blue Gene, where... Um, when we, as soon as we actually created a, a, a visualization, in this case using OpenGL um, with a three-dimensional view, it, for whatever reason, really helped people understand that, oh, that, that's, you know, like species of animals and they're growing and they're dying, rather, rather than just, you know, focusing them on the bits or whatever, you know, the little pieces, the code. They just, they just didn't get it. But as soon as we added the visualization, it seems like you could almost if you will, see the light bulb going off over their heads and their mouths would literally drop open. So I would say that the more robust the user interface, the better. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because I wasn't even really thinking about user interface, but the point that you've made is, is very valid, that even with a, a relatively 
simple aesthetic, if the user interface is there in a way where the user feels they're uh, participatory fundamentally, you can get away with very little in terms of the actual uh, graphical interface. Bruce, Where were you going? Oh, sorry. What were you asking? I want to make sure I understand. Well, I don't know. There, I was thinking about this last night, actually. I saw the film uh, La Haine, which I saw as a teenager. And the thing that captured me about La Haine was the aesthetic of the French ghetto. And when I was developing Noble Ape initially, I thought that the algorithms that I use for the biology, which are based in quantum mechanics, could also be used to create urban and suburban environments. And in 99, I was traveling um, North America and Europe, uh, meeting uh, VR folk and going to VR installations. And there was a company in Berlin that had rendered Berlin down to a, a very fine level of detail and then put human automata wandering through the streets of Berlin. So the aesthetic that we've discussed so far seems to be relatively biologically inspired. But then you have the things like Framsticks, for example, or Gerald de Jung's Darwin at Home. And these are quite uh, abstract, almost alien aesthetics. So I think there are a wide variety of aesthetics that folks can use to develop contemporary artificial life projects. But I, I agree. I think the user interface is an important component that shouldn't be ignored. It isn't just visual. It's the ability to, to interact with keyboard and mouse and other kinds of interfaces. I know Dave Kerr has recently applied for a grant to use the Wii um, interfaces, the Wii Mote or whatever the technology is called, as a means of exploring AI planet. And I think these new kind of interfaces that are coming out, the, the multidimensional um, uh, console-based interfaces that are used could really offer a low-price solution to artificial life developers looking for new uh, new means of prodding, basically, artificial life environments. So in, in those kind of terms, Bruce, what is your thinking with regards to the user interface of your environment? Well, I think that there's a, a sort of one of the questions popped into my head was how much do you allow the user to interact with the, the creatures and the scene. And it comes, sort of comes down to if the user could go in and tweak with the DNA and build all new creatures, then you'd have less of an artificial life experiment and more of an intelligent design spore type experience. So, But there's nothing wrong with having human intellect and human characters or avatars running around in these scenes just as another object. But here's a thought, Bruce. That um, I'm sorry to I'm sorry to interrupt. But whenever people say that, I always reflect on the idea that if you have um, I, I don't want to be derogatory here, but if you have a thousand monkeys at a thousand keyboards, you get noise basically. If you have a thousand users at a thousand interfaces, all contributing to the same environment, the the idea of intelligent design is with regards to a primary designer, and when you have multiple participants in an environment, you in fact break every aspect of intelligent design because the selection pressure is based on individuals that are it's almost random in that regard. So I think that was that was something that caught me and certainly I've talked about it previously through the biotech conversations, but it caught me uh, in fact a few things caught me with regards to what Will Wright said. But that did in particular that if you have a number of participants all involved in the same environment, it isn't really the same thing as, as uh, 
capital I, capital D intelligent design, surely. Right, yeah, it's, it's more of a bulk selection pressure. It's like another population. Well, I, I think it would, be, it would be wonderful if people could be in there interacting. You know, when we did Nerve Garden, and this is ages ago, but people extruded their Elsa's implants and then placed them on a shared garden island, and then they would move around and there were insects flying around and whatnot, but there was nothing else beyond that. It was just basically like a sculpture. Um, and whereas Claude Latode's work at at uh, University of Paris, I mean, the all systems keep growing and they follow lines of, of nutrients and, and their phototropism where they'll seek the light. And so that's a tremendous uh, jump in environments. The, one of the problems, though, that, that they have is this is an environment called Darwin's Park. And the problems that they have is that after running this for two or three minutes, the frame rate is incredibly slow. And they're rendering it in ogre, but they've just they've overloaded it. And that's another argument for uh, having a grid where the L systems are realized procedurally, but you're only going to be traveling through a patch of it. And they're also using a single computer, aren't they? I mean, that's part of the problem that it's one computer doing doing all the rendering. That's right. And Second Life and any other massive multiplayer online environment. You know, they basically serve you patches and of the, their grid. They, they, you just travel through the grid and, and in bit by bit. And so they always guarantee a frame rate. Um, you can't overload one local area because the, uh, the, the viewer or the view portal is intelligent enough to not do that. So let's talk a little bit about Second Life for a moment because I've uh, had some correspondence with regards to the current Second Life Artificial Life project. They have a, a relatively active wiki, uh, and they're an interesting group of folk who are currently exploring the kind of limits to the scripting environments in Second Life. I, I um, have heard I heard your um, presentation at Linden Labs, I guess, a year ago now, and you were um, inspiring the developers at Linden Labs and also the, the folk that they communicated with to develop uh, artificial life environments in Second Life. Do you think for someone who's starting out, Second Life might be a, uh, an option in terms of cultivating a garden, or do you think there is a, a need for a, a new paradigm, which, uh, you know, a, a future Second Life that artificial life will ideally thrive in? I think that the, the challenge you have with, with Second Life is the scripting environment is extremely restricted and you're restricted to a very small amount of working memory to, to, to use, and things run very slow. So the problem is you could probably grow a fairly nice L system forest. It would be good to look at, but you could never get any kind of, of bulk complexity. A lot of, a lot of objects and a lot of large genomes and a lot of reproduction, reproduction and adaptation, you just couldn't because Second Life is, is totally built to run at the user's pace and, and serve the user. It's not designed to be a batch background massive processor, which is what you need for an artificial, a real artificial life evolver system. Certainly, certainly. And Justin, I know you, you meet with companies that are looking for the, the magic bullet with regards to creating um, very rich and self-maintaining artificial life systems in their own environments. 
What's your thinking with regards to what is needed in, in future engines in order to make uh, artificial life development easier? I think, uh, well, that's a big question. Uh, I think partly uh, we've been exploring you know, the linkage between high-performance computing environments, whether it's supercomputers. Or, I love the idea that Bruce is talking about the Evo grid, um, coupling that with you know, even maybe some rendering that happens uh, on uh, server farms and then actually stream the rendering out through OpenGL using some technology that's available. So that you could actually render stuff on server farms where it's more ap- applicable and then stream out the environment to a thin client or, or a smaller client environment. Uh, I think what we need is is the will to do it. I mean, we've been in the gaming space, we've been working on trying to build a new game that embeds artificial life in it. Less of the spore mentality, uh, but real, a true evolutionary computation engine, if you will, a true artificial life engine, where the game, the the, the character, non-player characters are, are actually, um, you can train it. Like if you've got a squirrel running around and you feed the squirrel in the game, that squirrel gets happy and will actually come up to you just like a real squirrel in the real world would come close to you, whereas if you throw the food at the squirrel, it'll learn that you, you know we're bad. Um, these are some of the things that we've been playing with, but I don't know if that helps answer your question. I think that it's a very difficult challenge, and I think it re- requires a lot of uh, very difficult thinking to make it actual reality. But once you once you just kind of break through the, the initial gap of, of understanding that this stuff is possible and there is technology to use it, then there's a lot of opportunities. One, one thing I want to point out is two ends of the spectrum. Um, it's a very good idea for people to go in and script in Second Life and learn about doing it because it's an incredible test bed. So somebody might build something fairly simplistic that they try to make into an artificial life environment that will inspire them to go out and help with a a real application. So I don't want to dissuade anyone from doing that. The second thing was uh, Will Wright's comments uh, last Saturday, which uh, I don't know if it came through in the audio because he was running music over top of Spore. So I was recording. It was very hard to hear him. And he was saying, yeah, you know, you know, a, a, a true artificial life system, it wouldn't be very interesting for players because you're waiting and waiting and waiting, and then you see a small effect, and you, it's hard to interpret it. And, uh, you know, his whole thing was play is playability. And I think that quite possibly the, the goals of, of playability um, on the human scale and a true evolutionary system are, are like oil and water, they're very incompatible. Yeah. Oh, good. I would say I would agree with that because what we have actually had to do is when we visualize the artificial lives, we actually have to speed it up. So maybe there's 300,000 generations, which took you know weeks or days to run. Then we'll compress it and speed it up so that the human eye can actually see. And what it starts to look like is almost like imagine looking at the Earth from space and seeing the rise and collapse of the dinosaurs, the rise of mammals, the rise of reptiles. You know this kind of um, fl- you know f- flourishing of flora and fauna. That's, it's almost that impression that you get when you look at it from a macro view, uh, sped up. I, I guess I'm going to be the one disagreeing with Will Wright and everyone else on this, this radio show. My thinking is that what you're talking about here is genetics. But per I think our original discussion, Justin, what needs to be simulated as well is an idea of epigenetics. Because one thing that you can see very rapidly is this idea of cultural development, something that actually goes on within life cycles as opposed to over distinct lifetimes. And I think uh, the 
the issue with regards to observability and interactability and these kind of things is based on the algorithms and the methods that are used. Now, I'm going to pause here because we have some feedback from the chat room. We have an active chat room this evening, which is wonderful. If folks want to participate in the chat, they can get to it through biota.org slash podcast. Click through to the Blog Talk Radio and you'll get to the chat. Bruce, unfortunately, from the chat, they're saying that you're talking too softly. So we'll need to um, up your levels or perhaps get you more excited or angry or all of the above. In addition, if folks want to call in and participate, the number is 646-200-0640. So as we're now talking about the uh, Will Wright talk specifically, I've mentioned a little bit with regards to epigenetics and the idea of communities and community growth and also the kind of visible evolution that's that's interactable and also uh, seeable, obviously being visible evolution. And this comes from the kind of algorithms that are used. It's always been a concern of mine that Will Wright hasn't looked into those algorithms. In fact, I shared with Bruce that what Will Wright was saying uh, disagreed um, in some regard, with regards to Dawkins' analysis and post-Dawkins' analysis, I'm talking about the blind watchmaker specifically, um, but also this idea of artificial life as being more than just genetic algorithms. Um, so in addition to that, Will Wright made an, a couple of interesting points in terms of what a commercial project is, the ideas of franchising, the costs, the number of folks involved, but one point that he didn't talk about is the kind of lifetimes of the technology. I think certainly this is um, perhaps the narrative with regards to Second Life, and we may get Jeffrey Ventrella uh, to call in uh, this evening as well. But the idea of a life cycle needs to almost be written out of the kind of development uh, that you would want to be doing with, with Evo Grid, surely, uh, Bruce. Yeah. That's, uh, now, how do I sound? I'm on a different telephone. Okay, maybe a little louder. A little louder. Uh, sorry about that, folks. I'm, yeah, I think the, the bane of this medium is obsolescence and the discarding of projects and tools. And it's, it's the bane of the software medium, but generally a lot of other fields do, don't throw away their, their tools and they don't have individuals doing little walled garden projects uh, for a year or two or three, and then abandoning them—that that sort of that that wouldn't create an industry, a sustainable industry. And I think for artificial life, we've got to overcome this problem. And the way you do that is is by having a a, a, whole, a greater whole. So your project communicates with these generally agreed upon APIs, and the code is out there, and it's open source, and and it doesn't have to have you around to develop it. Uh, further, it could be scripted, and you could come back to it later. But someone in the meantime might have developed it in the sort of Linux model, and that's what we need to do in order to create something as that's, that's as large and as, as comprehensive as something like Spore. You can't you can't afford to have uh, go up all these dead end, dead ends. Well, I think the interesting thing with Spore, and this has always concerned me with regards to the um, single release or perhaps a small number of versions game development cycle is when Spore is released, and I don't think Will Wright gave a, a fixed date in terms of when it will actually be, re be released, but once it's released, it still has a fixed time cycle associated with it. 
Now, there may be a spore too. This was alluded to in the talk, and I know the, the Wikipedia folk are squirreling away to add that to the Wikipedia entry with regards to spore currently. But there is still a finite time cycle associated with a released game. And when I was thinking about the topic for this evening, the idea of surreal and possible worlds and creating rich environments based on probably just an individual developer's idea or someone who's new coming to artificial life and thinking, what will spark my interest in a project or what interests me sufficiently to dedicate 3, 5, 10, 15 years of my life to developing a, a rich environment or things of this nature, I started thinking about my own experience. And certainly, as I said in the initial uh, Biota Live, Bruce and I have very different experiences in terms of actually our meeting people. Um, aside from Bruce, I don't think I've actually physically met another artificial life developer so the ability to meet people physically and interact physically with people and discuss things over a beer and things like that seem to be less important in some regard if the environment is sufficiently rich. And I started going through the experiences that I've had developing Noble Ape, and it's all been, in some regard, isolated. But I have had wonderful little avenues. For example, when Apple uh, demonstrated Noble Ape for the first time, the audience actually cheered when the Noble Ape slide went up and I've had correspondence from people that have been in the audience since when Apple has done demonstrations. And there seems to be a community of developers that are very receptive to Noble Ape, although I have no primary contact with them. Although, um, actually, around the same time that I met Bruce for the first time, I also met my first uh, Noble Ape developer who had developed with it at Apple. Um, so in terms of actual physical proximity, that seems to be less important than the richness of the environment and the kind of initial passion that certainly Jeffrey Ventrella talked about very heavily with regards to his own experiences and possibly going scuba diving and whether that is a motivating force. And I know, Bruce, you talk about anthills and early childhood experiences with regards to observing nature as being particularly powerful and motivating. So I think these are the kind of, these are the kind of thoughts which really will generate, uh, which will motivate people to uh, create artificial life uh, in the future if people are just listening to this audio for the first time and thinking to themselves, what, you know, what will motivate me to actually create an artificial life environment or get in contact with Bruce or get in contact with Tom or, um, you know, Justin or Jeffrey Ventrella or any of these artificial life developers if you want inspiration. You know, what, what is the primary motivation? And I was thinking about such the diversity of environments that people are drawn to, whether they're very small, whether they're very big, whether they're interstellar, whether they're in water, whether they're cityscapes, whether they're small towns, villages, this idea of... Uh, community simulation and generating artificial life from that or artificial life in the petri dish, all these kind of ideas that people use as initial motivations. So if we can talk in a kind of high-level abstract sense, Bruce, when, one says, when, when I say to you, someone who is thinking about developing artificial life for the first time, what kind of collective experiences do you think that person should have or seek out? Gosh, I think I think that they should go and run as many of the extant environments online that they can, just so that they don't uh, kind of reinvent wheels that have been done many, many times, and try to do something unique with reference to the prior work. Uh, because there's nothing, nothing worse, I think, than 
slaving away at something and then finding that someone else did it five years ago and they did it really a lot nicer because you're in isolation. And, uh, you know, if, if, we, if there are gray thumb groups all over the world, um, there, there will be a chapter near you and you'll be able to, to partner with people and so you're not working alone. And I think that's, that's important. And go back and try to read some of the classic texts and books if you can still find them. But uh, I think not trying it alone and, and trying to also read real biology, really studying what an ecosystem is so that you have some idea. I mean, one of the reasons why Tom Ray's work was so compelling and, and convincing is because the fellows are real zoologists, you know, are real field biologists um, with a lot of credits under his belt. So he, he, he knew full well what his TRNs did and did not really do compared to what he studied in the Costa Rican rainforest. Certainly. And if I can make a, another point, uh, I was involved with a, an open source effort to get open source into schools a few years ago, and they were very excited about uh, artificial life developers getting uh, open source into school, uh, open source artificial life projects into schools as a means of kind of evangelizing what Bruce is saying in terms of people participating in a wide variety of projects and thinking, well, I could contribute here or this ties in very uh, heavily with your friend, I believe her name's Margaret Corbett. Am I right in that, Bruce? Yeah. She um, deals with schools and uh, educational standards and the ways in which to get I think avatar environments into schools and things like that, doesn't she? Yeah, she has, um, gosh, five, six years of experience actually going into K through 12 middle schools and using avatar environments, uh, you know, extensively in the New York State area. It does really require um, a state-by-state -state, uh, plan of action. Certainly, my communication with. Um, the, the folk that were doing open source into schools was that they needed to uh, develop a state-by-state -state strategy to address the um, various educational standards. When I was in Australia, I developed an offshoot of Noble 8 called Ecosim, and that was designed for high school students. And there it was a lot easier just to send people disks, basically, and if they used the disks, so much the better. If they didn't, they didn't. Um, but the US and to a certain extent, I guess, the UK and uh, possibly a wide variety of other countries have quite strict rules before uh, things will actually be used in the schools. And I think as, you know, as things develop, if we think about the, uh, the topic for tomorrow, which will be uh, artificial life for the next decade, this may be something that we think about in terms of motivating future artificial life developers through, through primary contact in schools. What's your thought with regards to this, Justin? Uh, I, actually, it's, it's a, a very interesting question in the sense that I've been in a lot of discussions. I mean, I'm in the corporate environment, and you know, the historical corporate environment has been, you know, protect the IP, never go open source. But increasingly, as I've been con collaborating with the virtual world people in terms of creating interoperability standards, and this is work with Forterra, Linden Labs, Sunidai, and IBM, et cetera, I've realized that that is not going to work. Creating these walled gardens or closed systems is just a bad idea. It doesn't work. As soon as we start opening it up and creating methods for the animals or the critter, the life forms to move from virtual world to virtual world or the avatar to move from world to world, it opens up tremendous opportunities. And really the only way to do that is with open source. 
So I think that the more we move, you know, institutions and schools to open source uh, and provide, you know, students with the opportunity to create whatever it is they want to create, have the flexibility to build on to what other people do and potentially join the core teams of, of open source development, we'll start to see the growth like we saw with Linux. Certainly. We have a question from the chat from someone called Strafe asking about Star Logo. And I think certainly from my own experience, Logo, um, and the original author of Logo, I read his book. I can't think of his name now. Um, but these kind of... Papert, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, Bruce, can you say that again? Uh, Seymour Papert. Definitely. He, his experience and his vision with regards to getting Logo into schools resonated very strongly with me um, with regards to overlap development and certainly my own experience. I think my first programming experience was Logo at age probably seven in second grade. So um, I, I am the full circle in this regard. Is, is Star Logo the similar to the Net Logo stuff? But for, is that the one with the turtles? I, I haven't played with Star Logo. I've never played with it. What is it? Um, my understanding is it's similar to the uh, original Logo. I'm not sure if it has... Uh, turtles as such, but it's a similar kind of geometric programming language. We're having yes from Strafe. So yes, it is the same as, as NetLogo and all the, the previous um, definitions of Logo. Um, but it was an interesting model. When I um, talked at uh, NYU in, I think, 2000, I mentioned to them that part of my project with regards to Noble Ape was getting kids programming and getting kids interested um, in uh, writing software, whether or not it was artificial life software, I didn't really worry me, but the idea that kids w could become masters rather than kind of servants in terms of the way they interacted with computers was relatively important. And most of this audio is actually in an Ape Reality podcast, so for folks interested in hearing the, the presentation, noblape.com slash reality, uh, and it's, it's somewhere in the, the feed but the interesting thing, which wasn't recorded, was at the end, one of the NYU students piped up and said, well, you know, why should uh, children learn to program now? Because ultimately it was the start of the uh, outsourcing um, generation, and they thought that teaching kids to program was a bit like teaching kids to sew. It was a kind of older concept, and what was needed was... Uh, a kind of heavier idea of gameplay and interaction, more like, I guess, what Will Wright talks about with regards to the history of his Maxis products and uh, now Spore. What's your thinking with regards to programming versus game interactivity, Bruce? I, I think that it's certainly, um, for the most most of us, We'll be doing game interactivity and running user interfaces. But if we don't have uh, the skill set of real low-level programming that's carried on, we're going to really be out, up the creek as a technological society because that means we've accepted the systems as they are and won't be evolution. Um, there was a very controversial statement made by a professor back in the East Coast of the U.S. that he was worried about students only learning very high-level object-oriented systems and, and Java and scripting because we'll end up with a severe uh, gap of, of skills, people who can build microcode and operating systems and actually make, make new things. Because you can't really make new things at the high level as you can at the low level, even though the low level is, 
is very labor intensive. But you have to, I think any new thing you have to build up from building blocks, but you have to build up fairly low and build, go up from there. Certainly, certainly. So with eight minutes remaining, we've touched a number of different areas associated with creating surreal and possible worlds. Is there anything more you'd like to add, Justin? Uh, with respect to creating surreal worlds, I, I think that I would like to see, I think you mentioned earlier the Darwin at home, which is more of that kind of the alien aesthetic. Is Certainly. That I, I would love... In some regard, I mean, I think uh, Framsticks, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Marcek Omanchinsky's work with Framsticks, but that in some regard is a similar aesthetic. My only critique which I've made through these podcasts with regards to both Darwin at Home and Framsticks and to a lesser extent Brevet is the natural undulation or even undulation in general with regards to the landscape can produce a wide variety of quite interesting genetic effects, things like and crawlers that become swimmers and swimmers that become crawlers and these kind of things. So the ability to have hills and valleys and potentially water and a kind of richer environment is something that I always like to see in, in artificial life simulation. But sorry, I, I, I cut you off with regards to the aesthetic. Oh, well, no, I was just going to say that uh, I, I was not aware of that until I started uh, corresponding with you and I've been looking through that. How would you compare the aesthetic, if you don't want me asking of that, with what you've done with Noble Ape? Well, Noble Ape really has a very limited aesthetic. And I think the thing that caught me when I was talk, you know, assembling my notes for uh, this radio show was my aesthetic has always been an internal aesthetic. It's been the idea of theory and philosophy and a hope for the future in some regard. However, my background is with regards to getting very old computers to look like slightly newer computers in terms of graphics and processing and these kind of things. And that has really dominated the aesthetic of Noble 8 to date, uh, the Ocelot landscape engine currently, which is completely non-polygonal and platform independent. It isn't OpenGL. When people use it, they think, oh, this is just OpenGL. Well, if you get it to render in OpenGL on most machines, even machines with uh, specialized OpenGL cards, it's still not quite as fast as you can get through Ocelot. So my aesthetic has always been prefaced in not ever having the latest technology and always trying to make do with the technology that I have. However, I've recently received and pretty continuously receive emails from folks saying, uh, here's the, you know, here's a high resolution gorilla 3D, um, rendering. Please use this in Noble 8. Or, uh, here's some information in order to, uh, get detailed 3D ape-like walkers. Please use this in Noble 8. And really the, the difference, I guess, um, from, you know, what I'm doing from what Will Wright is doing is an order of magnitude with regards to budget, many orders of magnitude. But the distinction with regards to time is also very important. I've allocated really more than 25 years to develop Noble Ape in, in very real terms, in terms of planning how I put it all together, with the view, and Bruce will know this through corresponding with me, that graphics engines will get better, graphics cards will get better, and eventually the dreams and ideas that I have and running in general hardware in real time will exist at the same level that my kind of aesthetic dreams are with regards to Noble Ape. So that's perhaps the distinction. 
but I have very, you know, I, I have ideas in terms of um, things that aren't computer uh, graphics based, uh, potentially artwork, uh, potentially working with biologists in terms of uh, real world ape communities and things like that to represent what will happen in the future with noble ape. So in that sense, when I came to Noble Ape, initially I was very aware that I had XT machines running at 7 megahertz, you know, <laughs> and I had uh, a Mac PowerBook 100 running at 8 megahertz, and the kind of visions I had with Noble Ape at the time would never actually uh, exist in the hardware that I had at the time. But I have a very long-term view with regards to my Nobelite development. So what I'm doing currently, you know, making certain parts XML, well, that leads to the kind of, you know, supercomputation that Bruce is talking about with regards to his Evo grid and distributed processing and the ability for uh, third-party renderers to take these things and actually put real uh, renderings of apes in various, you know, various sizes and shapes and these kind of things in this environment. So I guess... Sorry, Bruce. Jumping in right there, I think my dream on this PhD work is having to have Noble Ape running as a citizen of the Evo Grid and digital spaces, uh, talking to it to render some incredible scenes with apes. You know, some of the apes that you've been you've been given. That would be a wonderful first proof of concept. Definitely. So we have three minutes remaining, and I have to hastily plug the fact that 10 a.m. tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Pacific, uh, what, 6 p.m. UK time, 7 p.m. for Europe, and um, I guess 1 p.m. on the East Coast, we will be doing all this again with regards to artificial life for the next decade, which I guess bends very neatly into what Bruce has been talking about as well. So thank you uh, both very much for participating in this evening's discussion. I think we've come somewhat closer to ideas of surreal and possible worlds. And as with all the previous Bio2Live shows, I think we'll probably continue them on in some direction, focus on particular topics that we've raised this evening for, for future shows. Justin, any final thoughts? Uh, no, I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Terrific. Bruce, any final thoughts? Looking forward to seeing you in London for getting another gray thumb branch started, Justin. Yeah, hey, I'm really excited about that. That'll be a lot of fun. Just as a FYI, I've gotten a lot of emails as a result of these conversations, so that's been quite interesting. Uh, so I think people are listening. Well, welcome to the clan. I mean, this is one of the things that really invigorates me is the quality and quantity of correspondence I receive from participating in this thing. So welcome to the clan, Justin. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Well, thank you both very much and look forward to, uh, to talking to you both and others tomorrow.